Hello and welcome to the Paranormal Sun, coming to you live from Tower Studios. As always, I'm JT, and each week, I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. How many thoughts can a person entertain within one lifetime? Is it fathomable to think that a human being can fulfill every wish within the 70 or 80 years of their life? Would it not make more sense to have numerous lifetimes by which to carry out every desire? This is what many traditions call reincarnation. That quote is attributed to the ancient ones. I'm confident that there is truly such a thing as living again, that the living spring from the dead, and that the souls of the dead are in existence. That's from Socrates. I adopted the theory of reincarnation when I was 26. Genius is experience. Some seem to think that it is a gift or a talent, but it is the fruit of long experience in many lives. That's from Henry Ford. When Churchill was once asked about the afterlife, he hesitated for a moment, and then he said no, that he thought there was only some kind of velvety cool blackness. He then added, of course, I admit I could be wrong. It is conceivable that I might be reborn as a Chinese coolie. In such a case, I should lodge a serious protest. Good morning, everyone. I hope you're well wherever you are in the world. I hope that you've had a great week. You've got to spend time doing the things that you enjoy with the people that you love. It's a really important part of life, as we all know. It's been good here. It started to clear up some, so it's still winter. It's still cold, but uh, at least we've got a chance to catch our breaths and dry out just that little bit. Tonight's main topic is going to be the case for reincarnation, part two. So I'm going to present you some more excellent cases, and I think that you'll find these really interesting just as interesting as the four that I presented on last week's show. So make sure you stick around and, and listen to that. You'll really enjoy it. As is traditional, I wanted to give a few shout-outs to some of the big supporters of the show, people who have been there for me through the thick and thin, so I really do appreciate it. First and foremost, to you, the listeners, anyone here who's listening, I really appreciate uh, you taking the time. It means the world to me. You're the reason that I do what I do, so thank you very much for supporting me and supporting the Paranormal Sun. Harry and Lisa in North Carolina, thank you as always for your continuing support. Eddie and his family in California. Chris and Max and Chris's family in Illinois, thank you. Adriana and Nico in Texas, thank you so much for your support. My Chicagoland listeners, my Montana family, Scott in Missouri and the Old 77, thank you very much. And the Fidianga Tribe. I'd also be amiss if I didn't remember to give a shout-out to my friends over at uh, the, the Thursday Thursday podcast who've been very supportive of the show. I really appreciate uh, what they've done, so thank you very much for supporting my program and supporting The Fortunate Son. And, of course, uh, Noel and Nicole over at uh, the Quite Unusual Pod. It's an ex- excellent program. It deals with a lot of kind of similar topics uh, as I deal with on this program. Slightly different format. They've got, uh, you know, 
uh, Nicole and uh, Noel are co-hosts, and they do a really good job. Uh, on their last episode, uh, they read a a listener submission. They asked for people to send in stories, you know, of the kind of paranormal, the unexplained, the weird, and uh, they chose one of my stories, uh, which is a real life story about an encounter with Charles Manson. Uh, not me personally, but someone I was very close to. And they did an excellent job of reading it, in fact, better than I think I could have done. So thank you very much, ladies. It, it was excellent to hear that story. And uh, maybe in future I might um, I might uh, approach the team over at the Quite Unusual Pod and see if I can uh, borrow that uh, that that bit of um, audio to put into one of my episodes in future when I cover over something like that. So again, folks, like I say, um, you know, we'll make sure to get back into the reincarnation stories this evening. Uh, I really have enjoyed doing the research for this. There's lots of cases that I knew a little about, but I've learned so much more about. And then there's all kinds of cases that I've never even heard of. So I do have one last special shout out. Once again, I want to thank my listeners in France. I really appreciate how much you've uh, been listening to the show. Thank you so much, both The Fortunate Son and The Paranormal Son. It means the world to me. Uh, and I'd like to also announce, just to, you know, general show, show news, to let everyone know, The Paranormal Son has now gone over 500 listens, which is, you know, a, an amazing feat to me, something that, uh, you know, I'm very grateful for. I'm very thankful. And thank you very much for everyone who's listened. And thank you very much for everyone who has put other people onto the program. It, it really means the world to me from the bottom of my heart. Thank you so much. And one other note, um, I have got the Paranormal Sun now listed on a specialty radio service that's about paranormal. It's called Paranormal Radio. And uh, I was quite quite flattered to be able to join that network considering that you've got people like Jimmy Church, Astonishing Legends, some of my other favorite podcasts are on there. And it was really, really awesome that uh, I got to join up on there. They've asked me to submit a small write-up about the program, uh, what I do, kind of the topics I cover, and then submit it, and then they'll send it out in their weekly uh, newsletter. So, uh, yeah, that that's awesome, and uh, it's another step in the right direction. Onward and upward, folks. Uh, again, uh, without your support, I couldn't do it. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. Well, my friends, it's been a very busy week in the world that I cover and the things that I look into for you. It's really been an interesting week's worth of stuff going around at the moment. There is some more out there about the Maje Brazil UFO crash. Now, you know, again, you take these things with a, with a grain of salt, but uh, I just listened to earlier tonight, I just listened to the latest episode of Linda Moulton House YouTube channel, and she had a remote viewer on there, on there uh, talking about the Maje UFO crash. And... For those of you who don't know what remote viewing is, it's someone who psychically views an event or location in their mind. Uh, they're given a set of coordinates and asked to talk about what they've seen there. It's quite an interesting phenomenon, and I will be covering it over at one point in the show. Uh, much like predictions, it's never 100% accurate, and I don't know what to think of it to tell you the truth. It is very interesting. It is something that I think bears more investigation. Uh, in in future, before we make a definitive decision on you know whether it's a real phenomenon or not, like a lot of the psychic type phenomenon. 
So anyway, on Linda Moulton Howe's program, she had a remote viewer view the Maje Brazil crash, basically the coordinates and the date. And they claimed that it was a craft that was shot down by the U.S., uh, by a special uh, military um, detachment of the U.S. Uh, that shot down this craft with some type of particle beam weapon and that uh, all three of the occupants were killed and taken to a uh, taken to a base for you know further inspection again take these things with a grain of salt I, I just find it quite interesting and I always keep my mind open when I listen to things like this there's also been a bit of an ongoing case and this is something that I brought to a few people's attention. One of the things that I've always been fascinated by, and I'm sure you can tell by some of the things I've covered on this program, are, are kind of lost history or things that have happened, things that have occurred that we may not know about or may not have happened in the way that general historians will tell you. And there's a gentleman named Scott Walter, and he's a very divisive person. Uh, a lot of people think that he's a you know, a pseudoscientist and so on and so forth. But again, true, true debunkers, I find, will attack anyone who doesn't toe the party line. So anyway, um, Scott claims that he went to a location in Texas where there is a cave with some stones that were discovered in 1968. And it was brought to his attention because the person who discovered them is dying of cancer. And he wants somebody to have a look at them and investigate them further. Now, according to Scott, the earliest date that they found in and around this area was 1501. And it was carved into the wall of this cave. And there were dates running up into the 1700s. Basically, what Scott's postulation is, is that this is a graveyard for some sort of group that obviously came to the New World at a very early stage because Columbus only went on his first voyage in 1492. And he had three or four voyages. I can't remember if it was three or four. But uh, basically at this time, in this area of the world, the only European who should have been there by conventional history is Christopher Columbus. So anyway, Scott Walter was on both Jimmy Church's Fade to Black and then on Coast to Coast talking about these stones. And I've included a link in the show notes just so you can go over and have a look at these stones. Um, as always, this is a very divisive topic. But again, you know what gets my goat by now, folks. And what really annoys me is people who just shout down anything like this without even considering that it might be true. You know, I, I just always love it when I read something like, oh, it looks fake to me. Well, again, you're looking at a photo, number one. Number two, how many of you that are making these assertions are geologists and historians, you know? I would say next to none of them. It's just generally people who don't like what, you know, the story entails. And um, the latest that I really laugh about, and, and I shouldn't laugh, it really annoys me to tell you the truth. So the latest is that people attack Scott Walter and others who say Europeans were in the New World sooner than Christopher Columbus by saying, oh, they're racists, and they're racists, and they're, they're trying to say that white people were in America first. Hold on. Every one of these cases that I've personally looked at is talking about pushing back the clock 100 or 150 or 200 years. 
None of them are saying that Europeans were in America before Native Americans. For God's sakes, there have been Native Americans in America for 40 or 50,000 years. Just stop with this racist pandering. You know, oh, well, everything's racist because you're trying to erase someone's heritage. I'm American Indian, and I don't find anything racist about this. In fact, everything that I've ever seen of Scott Walter's work and everything that I've seen of most of these other people, they basically say that the Europeans came to North America, and the only reason that they were basically allowed to be there and get on with it is that you know they were treated quite well by the Native Americans and that they uh, formed a, a good bond. None of it says that they came and they were savages and they taught them everything they know or anything like this. So yeah, I just get extremely annoyed when I read things. You know, we're pushing an agenda. We're you know we we. We don't like what he's saying. We don't like what people are presenting. We don't like the alternative timeline that some people are presenting. So we'll just label it as racist. And to me, it come on, it's just ridiculous. Okay, again, they're not saying that Europeans came to America a hundred thousand years ago, settled America, and therefore there is no such thing as Native Americans. They're all Europeans. Come on, just pull your head out of your bum. You know, it's it, it just really annoys me. They don't want to talk about the cases. They don't want to talk about the evidence. So, you know, they start these type of attacks. And, you know, the Internet is a wonderful place, just like humanity. It's double-edged. It's great for all the exploration and all the things you get to learn. But on the other hand, you know, there is a real deep, dark depth of negativity. And... As for me personally, I'm doing my best to steer clear of those things. I simply pre present the evidence as I found, and I allow others to make up their own minds. And anyone who wants to attack me is wasting their time. Uh, I'm not going to talk to people who just want to blast me for no reason or because they don't like something. You know, if they want to have a real discussion, fine. But again, I'm not going to get sidetracked by that. I'm just going to present the evidence and allow you, the listening audience, to make up your own mind about what's presented. So I want to say one more small thing about this, folks, and then I promise I'll, I'll stop going on about it. To me, what's actually more racist is the people who claim things like, oh, all Indian myths are BS and, you know, they were all made up. So on the one hand, you claim that anyone who says that Europeans came to North America uh, earlier than 1492, um, you know, aside from maybe the Vikings into Canada, uh, if if you claim that, well, then you're racist. But at the same time, you treat an entire n group of many nations of people basically as ignorant savages by saying that all of their myths and legends all must be BS, you know, because oh, it doesn't fit in with our paradigm. So, you know, if anyone's racist, it's actually those people who act like this entire race of humanity is, you know, basically uh, backwards, backwards savages, and they can't know what went on. You know, the amount of times like in the ancient uh, astronaut theory that you'll hear, you know, I've heard these cases where certain tribes and certain groups around the world will say we were taught by these star people or we were taught by people from elsewhere. And, you know, and then the scientists and mainstream will come out and say, oh, no, well, no, they're, they're wrong. Um, that's not what they meant. Well, they're telling you what they meant. I mean, it's been handed down through generations and generations of their people. So, yeah, this, you know taking things and tweaking them to fit your narrative is BS. And, you know, again, I'm not saying every single myth and every single legend in the history of mankind is right, but I'm saying, you know, if you're going to sit here and espouse how great all of these cultures were before others came in, 
well, then, you know, maybe you should listen to what they have to say instead of pushing your own agenda on them. So anyway, folks, now I'll get off my soapbox. I'm sorry, but sometimes things like that just really get me fired up. So as I say, I'll, I've got a link in the show notes if you'd like to go over and look at those tablets. Uh, and now, on to the news of the damned. For those of you who may be listening to the program for the first time, Charles Fort was one of the real founding members of structuring anomalous data and strange and obscure data in a way so that you and I could read about it. So he gathered all these clippings and newspaper articles and uh, uh, magazine articles from all over the world. He spent many years and he published books. Now, Charles Fort referred to any data that didn't fit the scientific norm that was excluded or ignored by mainstream science as damn data. Therefore, every week I try to give you at least three topics, uh, three news articles about something that is news of the damned. So without further ado, the first one here I'd actually listened to a couple weeks ago and I forgot to uh, discuss it with you on last week's show. Now this is a fascinating case out of Austria. So yes, that's Austria and Europe, not Australia. So this was over on the earthfiles.net, and I listened to this clip on YouTube, but I'm just going to read you a bit of the um, correspondence that she has written down with this, with this couple in Austria. So this one is from July the 4th, and it's from Linda Moulton Howe. And this is titled, Mysterious Loud Jet Sounds Circling Over Austrian Mountaintop, But Nothing Visible in the Sky. Now here's a quote. Quote, the roar was also like coming down in circles of about one to two kilometers diameter, as if a huge airplane or jet was circling above our heads for six to eight minutes, and then another six to eight minutes with a five-minute break in between. But compared to airplane noise, we know, this was 100 times louder, unquote. Now, this is from Richard I.T., architecture software designer of Vienna, Austria. So, uh, this happened in St. Peter M. Kamensburg, Austria, on July the 4th. And it says, the first report I received of specific loud jet sounds emanating from the sky without any human-made jet aircraft visible was in August 2019. See shortlist from Earth Files Archive here. That highly strange jet-like sound without any visible aircraft in the sky was heard by a Boeing Company production facility employee in Everett, Washington, who was baffled. There have been a few other strange loud jet sound phenomenon without any visible human-made airlines or military air traffic. I hope there might be military or aerospace professionals with insider knowledge about what is happening in these disorienting cases who can contact me. Recently, another case was reported to me on June 25, 2020. I received the following email from an IT engineer who asked me to simply call him Richard. He is 56 years old and works in architecture software design. His wife, who is 59, works in the tourism industry. Both live full-time in Vienna, Austria, but in the summer they travel about 311 miles southwest to the beautiful mountain valley of St. Peter am Kamensberg. The valley is about 8 miles long, bordered by high mountains. Their summer house is about 1,200 meters altitude, which is nearly 4,000 feet above sea level with a clear view of the whole sky. Here's the email, folks. Dear Linda, two days ago my wife and I heard incredible roars coming from the skies. We are situated in central Austria in the Alps at around 1,200 meters above sea level. It happened two times for six to eight minutes each with a five-minute break between. Firstly, we thought there must be a huge airplane circling above, but we couldn't see any single one. The roar was also like coming down in circles of about one to two kilometer diameter, as if a huge airplane was circling slowly above our heads for six to eight minutes. 
but compared to air, airplane noise we know, this was 100 times louder. About 10 minutes after the roars, a military helicopter was flying over the valley from north to south, but the flapping sound of the rotor was silent compared to the strange roars. I recorded the second roar and uploaded it directly to YouTube, and he's got a link for the YouTube. The military base was St. Peter am Kamensburg, is 34 miles to the east at Austrian Zeltwig Air Base, now known, uh, now known as Fliegershorst Hintoyser, a military airfield in the province of Styria. It is the main air airfield for the Austrian Air Force. Since the first decade of the 21st century, Austria's Zeltwig Air Base has had Eurofighter Typhoon twin-engine Canard Delta Wing multi-role fighters. The Eurofighter purchase was subject to controversy in Austria and became a political football for some time. But the 15th and final aircraft was delivered on September 24, 2009. So it goes on to say here that it was about lunchtime when they were in the kitchen, and they both sounded, said it sounded like the sky ripped open with the sound of jets roaring in a circle above their mountain house. So they thought they would go outside and they would see, you know, these fighter jets uh, maybe having some type of military maneuvers. Now, folks, I'm just going to play you uh, a very quick clip of this audio. And again, there'll be a link in the show notes so you can get a better idea. Hold on just a sec here. So, yeah, folks, um, definitely a very strong jet sound. I mean, it sounds like the jets at the airport uh, that I used to work very close to taking off and landing. And, you know, they're asking, what is this? And they, you see them panning the camera around and there's nothing there. So it is quite interesting. And there's a lot more to this story. Linda is always quite thorough in her approach when she writes these stories. And she's got links to several other cases of this cases of the booms, uh, you know, that people have heard and the trumpet like sounds. So yeah, I would encourage you to go over and check out that article. Now on to the second article of the news of the damned, uh, which is from coasttocoast.com. And this one is titled crop circles appear in Poland and Hungary. And this was on July the 7th, 2020. While crop circles most frequently appear in England, each year brings a handful of formations that are found in other countries, and over the last week, such designs have been discovered in both Poland and Hungary. The first of the two cases was reported in late June in the village of Orchow and was originally documented by a Polish UFO researcher organization, which marveled that the pictogram is impressive in terms of its size. It is 100 and several dozen meters in diameter. Despite the paranormal nature of the website covering the crop formation, an observer who visited the site dismissed an extraterrestrial origin for the event. 
On closer inspection, they explained, the formation clearly appears to be the work of a man with a board. The reporter went on to theorize that the design, which can be seen from above and consists of a small circle with a large ring around it, seems unfinished, as if the pattern was to be more complicated, but someone had to stop work or plan to do it in stages. Crop formations in Poland are not an entirely rare phenomenon, as a cursory search of the excellent website Crop Circle Connector, which catalogs the cases each season, finds that one or two designs are reported in the country each year. The phenomenon is far rarer in Hungary, so it's understandable that residents were rather excited to hear the news that a mysterious formation had been found there last week. Consisting of merely a circle pressed into a field of crops, the diameter makes up for its lack of flair by way of its sheer size, measuring a whopping 85 feet in diameter. Speaking to a local media outlet about the case, plant engineer Laszlo Tolt put forward a rather intriguing suggestion for how the formation was created. Dismissing both the UFO phenomenon as well as humans for the source of the crop circle, he argued that the formation was what local lore calls the footprint of the devil's hoof, and it was likely created by lightning emanating from the ground upwards towards the sky. Thoth went on to explain that this occurs so fast that it cannot be seen with the naked eye, and results in an electromagnetic field that spins counterclockwise, which just so happens to be the direction of the flattened crops in the newfound circle. Now, folks, I don't know what to think of this. Looking at these uh, crop circles, they are rather basic in, compared, in comparison to some of the really elaborate ones I've seen. I do believe that there are definitely crop circles out there that have been hoaxed by people. But I also believe that there are many that are just too complex for a couple of guys with a, with a board from the local pub to hoax. And, uh, you know, until they can prove to me that they've made all of these, I will continue to keep my mind open on this phenomenon. So yeah, it's quite interesting. And at some point, I will cover crop circles in the future on the show. Uh, and again, I'll have a link to this in the show notes for you as always. Now on to the last article of the News of the Damned is uh, for my fans in France. Uh, this is a shout out to you. And it says, found Central France's first megalith. It's an elaborate tomb with stones gathering from Hilter and Yon, from Hither and Yon, sorry. So this was by Isaac Schultz, November 26, 2019. For millennia, megaliths were humankind's biggest, boldest way to show a mortal or deity that you cared. And few places host more of these massive enigmatic stone structures than France, where many megaliths are clustered in Brittany and other northern regions. Long before William the Conqueror or the cultivation of wine, Prehistoric communities left their mark by erecting the standing stones. Now roadwork in, in Puy-de-Dôme, France, between the cities of Bordeaux and Lyon, has revealed that the ancient stone footprint is little bigger than previously thought. In September, a team led by Ivy Thomas, sorry, Ivy Thompson, an archaeologist with the National Institute for Preventative Archaeological Research, unearthed the rocky trove, about 30 basalt stones called menhirs, in a 500-foot-long line, five menhirs arranged in a horseshoe shape and a single limestone rock roughly carved to resemble a human. The stones in the alignment generally got smaller the further south they were found, suggesting an intentional north-south plane in the construction of the monument. Before this discovery, we thought that the megalithic culture never really reached the center of France, says Thomas. It's the first site here that can be called a megalithic monument. Beside the curious alignments, Thomas's, Thompson's team found a rock-adorned tomb that housed a single skeleton. Adding to the mystery, 
all the menhirs and the tomb itself had been knocked down and covered up. In, in what way have been an act of ancient iconoclasm? But without further evidence, it's hard to solve the whodunit. Megaliths are, by definition, huge. But they're all created. But they weren't all created equal or assembled for the same reason. Around the world, researchers have found megaliths comprising everything from ancient calendars to ritual sites. Some are stone monuments like Stonehenge. Others are tombs like Ireland's Brown Hill Dolmen. The four-acre site at Puy de Dome may have been a bit of both. This is an exceptional tomb, says Thompson. It is a monumental. It is a monu, It is mon monumental, involving a lot of people in its construction. Yet it contains only one individual. It is undeniable that the man for whom this tomb was built was a person of great importance. After the team conducted its initial analysis, the important art artifacts, the carved limestone, the well-preserved stones, and the human remains were removed from the site, and roadwork was allowed to continue. Now the finds from Puy de Dome are housed in. INRAP's lab in Clermont Ferrand. The megalith site hasn't been dated yet, but Thompson's team has thoroughly documented the area with photographs, drawings, topographic surveys, and more. Radiocarbon dating, the sole human skeleton, will likely help researchers figure out when exactly all the heavy construction took place. Thompson said the stones that comp composed the tomb and surrounding megaliths, some of which weighed a ton, were brought to Puy de Dome from multiple sites in the surrounding area. The stone's numerous origins may suggest that several communities were involved in the construction of the site. Clearly there are still a lot of unknowns and Thompson's team has a lot of analysis left to do. One thing is certain, however, and that is the most important thing, Thompson said. These megalithic constructions involved a huge amount of manpower and collective work. So yeah, folks, once again, uh, we find out so often that things our ancestors did we don't necessarily understand the width and the breadth, the the width and the breadth of what they've done, the hard work that they put in, and you know the staggering complexity of some of these sites, like Stonehenge, like Gobekli Tepe, like uh, many of the sites in Central and South America, and in Asia, and in North America, all over the world. You know, it is amazing, and I find it. Quite interesting how it seems that mainstream archaeology has sold our ancestors short for hundreds of years, and now they always act shocked every time they find out something like this is more complicated than they thought. So hopefully my listeners in France enjoyed that. I'll do my best to keep my eye out for any further topics in France. And if you've got any, send them in. Send them in to theparanormalsun at gmail.com, and uh, I'll be happy to read them on the air. I do apologize, folks, for my flubs tonight. It's 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 very chilly this evening uh, in the studio, so uh, I do apologize for that. And with that, I hope that you've enjoyed the news of the damned.
So on last week's episode, I discussed four cases of people who claim to recall past lives with stunning clarity. There are hundreds more like these from all over the world. So what do we make of it? Is it happenstance? Parents who coach their children? Young children with amazing imagination and luck to get so many things correct about obscure people's lives? Or maybe, just maybe, there's something greater at work here. Maybe these children have psychic gifts. Or equally amazing, maybe they are just what they say. Someone who has passed away and returned to the mortal realm and a new body to live a new life. Tonight I have four more captivating tales for you to listen to and make up your own mind about. First and foremost, folks, if you haven't already, get yourself your favorite drink, whether it's a cup of tea or coffee or a nice uh, adult beverage, and sit down and listen to these four amazing stories that I'm about to read to you. So the first one is about Luke Ruhlman. Luke Ruhlman was a young boy from Cincinnati. When Luke began talking about a woman named Pam, his mother Erica assumed it, would just, it was just an imaginary friend. His parents often remarked about their son's strange behavior when it came to things like safety at home, crossing the road, or drinks that were too hot or too cold. He took these things very seriously. Usually, these were things that a normal two-year-old would not be concerned about. Over time, the little boy repeatedly kept mentioning the name Pam, occasionally making comments like, I used to have hair like that, or I had earrings like that. One day, Luke's parents sat down with him and asked where he'd got all these ideas from. They wanted to know who this Pam was. His mother asked, who is Pam? That's when he turned to her and said, well, I was. His mother then said, what do you mean you were? Luke replied, well, I used to be, but I died and I went up to heaven and I saw God and eventually God pushed me back down. When I woke up, I was a baby and you named me Luke. The parents claimed they were shocked because they had not raised their son religiously and they never had a talk about God or heaven in front of the little boy. His parents went with the boy's story and asked him, how did you die? The boy replied, I died in a fire. I used to live in Chicago. I walked a lot and I caught trains. The mother wanted to know more about Pam. I was a black woman, the boy told his mother. To verify what her son had told her, the mother googled fires in Chicago and came across information about a fire at the Paxton, a well-known hotel located in a predominantly black neighborhood. The hotel made headlines after a fire caused the fatalities of many of its residents in 1993. The boy's mother also came across the name of one of the victims who died in the fire, who was a 34-year-old black woman by the name of Pam Robinson. The family appeared on the Ghost Inside My Child show on the Lifetime Movie Network, on which Luke immediately picked out Pam's picture. They then contacted Pam's daughter and discovered that the child and her late mom enjoyed the same kind of music. But soon after, Luke appeared to just let the memory of the woman go. It was like he got it out. He was finishing and had nothing more to say about it. His mother said of the story, for which she claims not to have received any money, needed to be told because deep down it's a positive one of unification. So this is a very interesting one, folks, and oftentimes in these cases, once the story gets out, once the child has had a chance to tell the story of the person whose life they claim to have lived in a former life, the memories do tend to fade. It's almost as if there's a relief, they've gotten things off their chest, there was unfinished business that needed to be attended to. Now the next one is one of the most famous and at the same time controversial stories of reincarnation. And this is about the Pollock twins in the UK. 
John Pollock was born in Bristol in 1920 and was raised in the Church of England before converting to Catholicism. Florence Pollock grew up as a member of the Salvation Army and became Catholic on marrying John. Despite his Christian faith, John also believed strongly in reincarnation, which he first encountered in a novel at the age of nine. John later told interviewers that at night he would pray to God for evidence of reincarnation, proving himself right and the priests wrong. The Pollocks finally left the church, the Catholic Church in the 1960s. At the time of the twins' birth, John believed strongly in reincarnation, but his wife Florence did not. Joanna Pollock, born in 1946, was the couple's third child and their first daughter. In 1951, following a family move to Hexham in Northumberland, their second daughter, Jacqueline, was born. While the parents were preoccupied with their grocery and milk delivery business, the girls were raised mostly by their maternal grandmother. The girls were inseparable. Joanna liked to mother Jacqueline, which the younger girl accepted. Joanna liked wearing costumes and acting in plays that she made up. She was generous and shared freely with other children. Both girls liked combing people's hair, especially their fathers. Joanna had a premonition that she would never grow up, often saying, I will never be a lady. Age three, Jacqueline fell into a bucket, an accident that caused a small gash on her forehead over her right eye, near the root of her nose. This formed a permanent scar that was slightly depressed and was especially visible in cold weather. Jacqueline also had a roundish dark birthmark on the left side of her waist. In May of 1957, Joanna was aged 11 and Jacqueline was 6. On the morning of May 7th, they were struck by a car and killed while walking to church with a friend. The driver was a local woman who, in despair at being forcibly separated from her own children, decided to commit suicide by driving after taking what she thought were lethal quantities of aspirin and phenobarbitone. Witnesses saw her driving erratically and bearing down on the children, who could not escape because of the wall on the other side of the sidewalk. The impact tossed them into the air like cricket balls. Joanna and Jacqueline were killed instantly. The incident made headlines throughout Britain. The subsequent inquest and trial of the driver was closely covered by the local paper. Their parents were deeply devastated. While Florence tried to avoid thinking about her girls, John preferred to keep them in his thoughts. On the day of the accident, he experienced a vision of them in heaven. Then he sensed the presence of their spirits in a top room of the house and took to spending time there in order to be close to them. He later said he felt the girls' deaths had been a punishment from God for having prayed for proof of reincarnation. But he also felt that his prayers, prayers would be answered by his daughters being reborn into the family. Florence objected to this notion, and for a time the dispute threatened their marriage. Florence soon became pregnant again, and John became convinced that Joanna and Jacqueline were about to reincarnate into the family as twins. Florence rejected this belief. Also, her doctor predicted a single birth based on the palpitations and fetal heartbeat, and there was no history of twins in either parent's family. However, she did bear twins on October the 4th, 1958. The girls were named Jillian and Jennifer. Jennifer had a birthmark that looked like Jacqueline's scar, and a second birthmark in the same place as Jacqueline's birthmark. Ian Stevenson's investigation into the case. Ian Stevenson investigated the case after learning about it through newspaper coverage in 1963. That same year, when the twins were four years old, he met the family at their home, interviewed the parents at length, and examined the girls for birthmarks. He met the family again in 1967, then corresponded with them until, the, until next visiting them in 1978, when the twins were 20. At that point, he had blood tests arranged to determine their zygosity, 
and found that they were monozygotic or identical, born from a single egg. Florence Pollock died in 1979. Stevenson visited John and his new wife, as well as Gillian in 1982, and continued to correspond with John until his death in 1985. Stephen wrote a detailed case report in the second volume of Reincarnation and Biology. Statements made by Gillian and Jennifer. Gillian and Jennifer made several statements and recognitions relating to Joanna and Jacqueline between the ages of three and seven. When the twins were about three, the parents brought out the toys that had belonged to the dead girls and which they had boxed up and stored in the attic. Gillian claimed the doll that had belonged to Joanna and Jennifer claimed the one that had belonged to Jacqueline. They both said the dolls had been gifts from Santa Claus as they had been for Joanna and Jacqueline. When Gillian saw a toy clothes ringer that had also been a Santa Claus present to Joanna, she said, there is my toy ringer, adding that Santa had brought it. Young children frequently quarrel over possession of a toy, but the parents observed that this did not happen. Florence Pollock occasionally overheard Gillian and Jennifer discussing the details of the accident. Once she came across Gillian cradling Jennifer's head, saying, the blood's coming out of your eyes. That's where the car hit you. John Pollock recalled that when he identified the bodies, Jacqueline's head was bandaged over the eyes. Gillian once pointed to Jennifer's forehead birthmark and said, that is the mark Jennifer got when she fell on a bucket. Florence had worn a smock while helping John with the milk delivery business, but put it away when she ceased that work shortly after her daughter's death. When the twins were about four and a half, John wore the smock to do some painting, and Jennifer asked him, why are you wearing mummy's coat? She then became annoyed at Jillian for not recognizing it. The older sister had been at school and had not seen her mother wearing the garment. When John asked Jennifer how she knew the smock was Florence's, Jennifer said her mother had worn it while delivering milk. The Pollocks had moved away from Hexham when the twins were about nine months old. When they were about four, the family visited Hexham again for the first time. As they walked towards a park, they were not yet inside of it. Jillian and Jennifer said they wanted to go across the road to the park in the swings, clearly knowing the way. When the girls complained about the lunch they were having at home, their mother said they could have lunch at school. And they answered, we've done that before. This was not true of Jillian and Jennifer, but it was true of Joanna and Jacqueline. According to John Pollock, when the twins discussed the accident between themselves, they often spoke in the present tense and almost seemed to be reliving it. The twins displayed behaviors that were similar to those of their deceased sisters. Like the older girls, they were very close. Jillian liked to mother Jennifer, and Jennifer accepted this, as had happened with Joanna and Jacqueline. The twins looked to their natural grandmother, who had done most, most of the caretaking of Joanna and Jacqueline for guidance and love, even though Florence was now entirely available. Also like their elder sisters, the twins liked to comb people's hair, especially their father's. Jillian was more sociable and generous with other children and showed the same early interest in costumes and acting that Joanna had. She generally seemed more mature than her twin sister. The twins had phobias related to cars. Their mother noticed that they would be very careful crossing streets holding her hands, though she knew that they could be related to her own caution. On one occasion, when a car engine started near them in an enclosed alleyway, John Pollock observed the girls cringe in terror and cling to each other, crying, the car, the car, it's coming for us, perhaps being reminded of the inability in their past lives to escape. At the time of their deaths, Jacqueline was still learning to write. Her teacher, concerned that she was still holding the pencil upright in her fist, suggested to the parents that they correct the habit by slapping her hand. When Jillian and Jennifer began learning to write at age four, Jillian immediately held the pencil properly, while Jennifer held it upright in her fist. 
She only started holding it properly at age seven, and even as a young adult would still sometimes revert to the fist grip. Joanna was somewhat slender of build, as was Jillian. Likewise, Jennifer's somewhat stocky build matched Jacqueline's. Joanna had a more splay-footed gait than Jacqueline did, and that difference showed up in Jillian and Jennifer also. At birth, a dark brown reddish birthmark was observed on the left side of Jennifer's waist, at the spot where there had been a similar mark on Jacqueline's. A birthmark corresponding with a past life scar, such as that on Jennifer's forehead that corresponded to the scar from Jacqueline's bucket accident, is relatively rare in reincarnation cases. Far more frequently, wounds replicated by birthmarks are those that cause the person's death. According to Florence Pollock, this mark was slightly depressed when Jennifer was born and showed up more during cold weather, as was the case with Jacqueline's scar. No one else in the family had similar birthmarks. Stevenson notes that since the twins were monozygotic and therefore identically genet identical genetically, genetics cannot explain Jennifer's birthmarks. Nor could an influence within the womb have caused a correspondence with Jacqueline's scar and birthmark. Stevenson's doubts whether maternal impression, psychic influence of the mother on an unborn child, could be the cause, as Florence did not believe in reincarnation, although he speculates about paternal impression as an alternative to reincarnation. However, as Stevenson states in a later work, he finds it inconceivable that John and Florence Pollock could have molded the behaviors of their twin daughters, so exactly to match that of their deceased daughters. As the twins grew older, they forgot their past life memories. During their early years, John Pollock refrained from referring to their statements about what they remembered, nor did he discuss with them his beliefs in reincarnation, which they learned about only at the age of 13. The twins went on to live normal lives. When Stevenson met them in their 20s, they said they remembered nothing about the memories. They accepted their parents' belief that they were their elder sisters reincarnated, while showing mild skepticism about reincarnation in general. Then in 1981, Jillian experienced some inner visions in which she saw herself playing in a sandpit with her brothers. She perfectly described the house and garden, lawns and orchards, that matched the house the family had lived in in Wickham, when Joanna had been younger than four. Jillian had never been to Wickham. So criticism and alternate explanations. The Pollock case is one of several discussed by British historian Ian Wilson in a broadly skeptical critique. He notes that the case is evidentially weak in that the only witnesses to the statements and behavioral signs are the parents, one of whom fervently believed in reincarnation cannot be said to be unbiased. Also, since the two pairs of daughters were in the same family, knowledge of the older sisters might have been available to the twins through normal means. As an alternative explanation, Wilson proposes maternal impression, writing, it can scarcely be doubted that during her pregnancy with the twins, Florence Pollock must have played and replayed in her mind the events of the life and death of her earlier daughters. However, he concedes that other cases investigated by Stevenson cannot be explained in this way as the life remembered is in a different family and sometimes a far distant location, ruling out any possibility of the mother having normal awareness of the past life circumstances. Richard Rockley, writing for the website Skeptic Report, suggests that John Pollock, since he believes strongly in reincarnation, most likely talked about his notion that the twins were reincarnations of their sisters in their presence. Also, other family members and friends might have talked about the accident and their deaths. He also suggests the parents could also be reading too much into the twins' statements or could be lying. As Wilson notes, however, birthmarks that match past life birthmarks, scars or wounds, which none of Rockley's theories would explain, are found not only in the Pollock case, but in a high proportion of reincarnation cases. 
Stevenson himself found that 895 cases in his collection in which the past life was identified, 35% involved birthmarks or birth defects. As Miles Edward Allen notes, some critics have dismissed the case solely because of John Pollock's strong beliefs in reincarnation, assuming that this biased his testimony. But Allen points out that despite the fact that Florence Pollock did not believe in reincarnation, her visions of events is the same as his. Stevenson said that John Pollock had responded to a journalist who made the same suggestion in these terms. If he had not believed in reincarnation, he would not have shared with other interested people the observations about Jillian and Jennifer that he and Florence had made. There would almost certainly have been no case or none worth reporting, Stevenson concludes, that the Pollock twins case, together with that of another pair of monozygotic twins who display variant evidence and behaviors, Indica and Karashapa Ishawara, provide some of the strongest existing evidence in favor of reincarnation. Now, as you can hear, folks, this case is, is quite well known. It's one of the most famous cases, and it is also one of the most controversial. One of the theories that, you know, I would at least state as plausible is that it's not talked about very often, but the twins had two older brothers. Now, even if the parents had not disclosed some of these things to the twins, the second set of twins, maybe the brothers had. Maybe the brothers had told them different things or they had picked up different things. I mean, these boys were alive when, when the first set of twins died. So it's not like they didn't know their own siblings. And surely they would have talked about them to some degree. Now, that doesn't rule out the case for reincarnation. However, it is something that I would be amiss if I didn't point out to you. And as always, you be the judge. Now, the next case we have is about Cameron McCauley. Cameron has had a documentary made. I haven't seen it, but it's called something along the lines of The Boy Who Lived Before. Cameron McCauley lived his whole life in Glasgow, Scotland. But ever since he started talking at the age of two, he has been telling his family about his previous life on the island of Barra, which is situated off the west coast of Scotland. Cameron lives with his mother, Norma. He started talking about a white house that overlooked the sea and the beach and he went on to explain how there were airplanes that used to land on the beach, and also that he was very fond of a black-and-white dog he'd had whilst he was there. The family had never been to Barra, as it was over 200 miles away from where he lived. So for those of you that use the metric system, that's over 300 kilometers. To get there, it would have taken an hour by plane or longer by sea. His dad on the islands was called Shane Robertson, who eventually died of being knocked over by a car. Cameron's actual words were, he didn't look both ways. One of the strangest subjects was the toilets. Cameron used to keep complaining that, on Barra, his parents had three toilets. He also spent ages drawing his house, a long white building standing on the beach. He would sit on his chair talking about his parents and his brothers and sisters, and as time went on, he got more and more upset about leaving his other mother. He would cry continuously and say that he wished his mother would see that he was all right. The story soon came to the attention of a film company, and after listening to his story, his nursery school teacher suggested that maybe they should film him and go to the island. The 2006 Journey to Barra After setting up a meeting, the film company agreed to take Cameron to Barra. They were also escorted by Dr. Jim Tucker, a child psychologist, who you've heard me discuss before. When Cameron was told he was going, he couldn't stop jumping up and down. I'm going home! I'm going home! he shouted. Upon reaching the island, they were astonished to find that they had indeed landed on the beach. Cameron started to run around yelling, I'm back! chattering away about his borrowed mother. 
He told everyone that she had long brown hair that fell all the way down her back and that she read him stories from the Bible. Cameron's mother stated that they were not particularly religious and had never done this at home. They soon booked into a hotel and started to search for clues to Cameron's past. After contacting the Heritage Center to find out about the house, they were unable to find records about any house being owned by the Robertson family overlooking the bay. To say they were disappointed would have been an understatement. They drove around the island looking for the house but couldn't even see one that resembled Cameron's descriptions. Then they realized that they were looking in the wrong direction. The planes that Cameron saw would be coming in from the wrong side of the bay. They realized that if Cameron saw them from his bedroom window, they had to be going the other way. Eventually, the hotel phoned them and said that yes, there was a Robertson's family home on the other side of the island, so they started to drive Cameron there. They didn't tell him where they were going, but when they arrived, Cameron jumped out of the car and ran straight to the house. He knew it immediately. But as Cameron walked through the door, he began to get very pale and went quiet. Up until now, he had recognized the exact gate at the front. He knew where to go and was so excited, but upon entering the house, he stood to one side, slightly uncertain. Then he took off, running around the house, pointing out all of the rooms where he had lived. He showed them all the nooks and crannies and the three toilets, much to his mother's surprise. When they went into the garden, he took them to his secret entrance that he had been talking about for years. The strangest part of the story, however, comes about when researchers manage to find one of the surviving Robertson family members. In most of the reports, they don't state whether this is a man or a woman. I believe in the video, it says it was a woman. Unfortunately, the relative in question seemed to know nothing about a man named Shane Robertson. But even stranger was the fact that his family, now living in Sterling, had photos of the dog and the car that Cameron had seen in his visions. Why was this? How could Cameron know about everything else but get this so wrong? It seemed that the relative in question would have been at the house around the same time as Cameron in his former life. As he grew older, Cameron began to lose the memories of Bara. After his visit, he settled down, happy to know that his mother and his life believed in his story. One of the last things that Cameron mentioned was that he was talking to his friend. He said that, don't worry about dying, you just come back again. When his mother asked him, how did you get here to me? He replied, I fell through and I went into your tummy. So that's another fascinating case. And again, folks, as I say, I believe there's a documentary out there called something along the lines of the boy who lived before on this case. Uh, I hadn't heard of it before researching for this program. So another excellent case, just another interesting one. Now, you've heard me talk a, a good bit about the Buddhist faith and Indian and Eastern faiths and the beliefs in reincarnation. So this last case is a little bit different than the others. This one is about Son, Son, Sonam Wangdu. And this was a, this, most of this came from a 1996 article that was written in Seattle. The four-year-old boy bounds about the room. I'm thirsty, he informs his mother. As she recounts some of her son's favorite action heroes, like Batman and Spider-Man, he pipes up. Power Rangers, too. If he strikes you as a typical child with a bundle of energy, well, not quite. The boy whose birth name is Sonam Wangdu, but who answers to Truluk La, is recognized in the Tibetan Buddhist community from here to Nepal as a reincarnated Lama. He'll be journeying to Kathmandu next week to receive his formal education and to head a monastery there with 38 monks. Truluk, Trulku La, which in Tibetan means reincarnation, 
is said to be the reincarnation of a beloved and revered High Lama, Dishong Rinpoche III, who moved to Seattle in 1960, following the Chinese Communist takeover of Tibet. He taught at the University of Washington, co-founded the Sakya Monastery in Seattle, and from the early to mid-1980s, re-established the Tharlam Monastery in Kathmandu. Dishong Rinpoche, who died in 1987 at age 81, was himself said to be the third reincarnation of the original Lama, or teacher, Dishong Rinpoche I, whose birth name was Chongchub Niyama, and who lived in Tibet the previous century. It is to this line of spiritual leaders that little Trunkul La has been added as Dishong Rinpoche IV. Rinpoche means precious one. Dongchen Rinpoche says there were actually two other candidates born the same year, one in Canada and another in India. And while it's true that Dongchen Rinpoche believes strongly that San Sanam was the one, his personality and his attitude matched Dejong Rinpoche III's, even at a young age. The boy had to pass one more test. At a private residence in New Delhi, India, young Sanam was presented with a collection of religious items that belonged to Dejong Rinpoche III, rosary beads, a bell, as well as duplicates that belonged to other deceased lamas. And without offering any instructions, Dangcheng Rinpoche watched the boy to see if he would choose the right artifacts. He did. Only a person who owns these things would be able to pick them out, Ani San Sakya says. What awaits Trukluya at the Ther Tharlam Monastery in Nepal is a rigorous education in subjects ranging from history to medicine and metaphysics. As head of the monastery, he'll have his own throne. At his enthronement ceremony two years ago in Nepal, some 4,000 people turned out, according to his mother, Carolyn Lama. She acknowledges non-Buddhists might have difficulty understanding reincarnation, but for the monks at Tharlam Monastery, she says, there is absolutely no doubt in their minds that this is the same teacher that they loved and who ordained them and took care of the monastery the last time. The monks treat her son like gold, she says. Mother and son will be separated, except for periodic visits, during the first five to eight years of his education. Then, then Trukula may come back to Seattle area to visit Buddhist centers and do some more teaching, although he'll still return to Nepal. Even before Trukula was born in 1991, there were signs he would be special, Lama says, which is his mother. Buddhism is a religion in which dreams carry much weight. Before she was pregnant, Lama says, she dreamed one night of rising in the air to the top of a sacred stupa, or religious monument, in the Kathmandu area and being able to see a line of shining stupas stretching off to infinity. Later, when she was pregnant, she dreamed of flying in a specially reserved airplane compartment with her son. The plane landed at an auditorium where the son would be giving Buddhist teachings. As he was about to begin, the Dalai Lama, the spiritual leader of Tibetan Buddhism, entered the huge hall. There were other indications as well, she says. When she first became pregnant, she asked her own lama, Dogchen Rinpoche, who founded the Sakya Monastery in Seattle with Dishong Rinpoche, to name the baby. Without hesitations or knowing its sex, he said, Sanam Wangdu. Sanam, pronounced Suinam, means with merit, and Wangdu means spiritual power. It was a boy's name, Dashong Rinpoche, before he died, also told two of his closest students that he would be born in the Seattle area. It was shortly after Trukula was born that Dengchen Rinpoche and another leader of the Sakya sect of Tibetan Buddhism, Sakya Trizin in India, 
recognized the infant as the reincarnation of Deshong Rinpoche, partly through signs during meditation, their own dreams, and divination, says Lama, who is 38. The two highest Lamas that had anything to do with him, Deshong Rinpoche, in his past life agreed. They chose him, says Lama, whose husband and Trukula's father, Tenzin Shopel Lama, was killed in a car bus accident in Seattle in 1993. If somebody doesn't want to be convinced, she says, you're not going to be able to convince them. These are things that you can't put on the scale and measure. What is important is that all of the Tibetan Buddhists have accepted Trukula as the reincarnated Deshong Rinpoche, she says. Asked if he is excited about going to Nepal, he leans over and sprawls himself on a table, flashes a big grin and says yes. But does he know why? No, he quickly replies. Now, this was written in 1996. And then I've got a little bit from another article I found when they did a bit of a uh, follow-up about 20 years later. So it says that his mother was conflicted about her role in, in her son's rebirth. On one hand, she says she would never presume to think that she could be the vessel through which someone so special or as important could return to Earth. I am as average as you could possibly get, she says. I pity the kid that would be born to me. On the other hand, she's not the least bit surprised that it happened. I might be humble, but I'm not dumb. I know logically that I would be a very good choice because I'm a good person, and I'm a very loyal Buddhist. Ironically, she is more concerned about what will become of her son after his studies are complete than she was about parting with him 20 years ago. The two talk regularly by phone. You don't know how many numbers you have to push, she says with a laugh. It's terrible. And he often speaks about the pressure he feels to live up to expectations. It's one thing to be compared to, say, your successful businessman father. It's another thing entirely to be compared to your three previous incarnations, all of whom spent a lifetime studying how to guide others towards enlightenment. So Dezong Rinpoche the, the fourth isn't about to rush anything. His mother expects that once his studies are complete, he'll travel Asia and the U.S., teaching the Dharma that he's multilingual, will only make him that much more efficient as a teacher. Having to have everything you say translated into English is a big deal in teaching, she says. So if your Lama can speak fluently in English, it's fantastic. For the time being, he has decided to stick around in Nepal for at least another two or three years. I have to keep telling the monastery in Seattle, please don't ask him to come teach. He's not ready yet. It's like a wine that you don't want to uncork before it's ripe, before it's seasoned or whatever. So there has been a lot of controversy about this boy and his mother in Buddhist circles because his mother was, was white. She was a Caucasian American, and his father, as you can guess from his name, was originally from Tibet, and he was Buddhist. So look, it's another fascinating case. And as far as reincarnation goes, Buddhism has, has one of the longest traditions and also some of the richest traditions. If you watch movies like Kundun, when someone is reborn as the Dalai Lama or one of these other high lamas, they're taken into a room with several, for example, each monk, you know, monks live a fairly pious life. So they'll have a, a bowl that they carry with them the, all their lives that they eat out of. They'll have a bell that they ring for prayer. They'll have beads that they count, just like Catholics. And so what is what is done is, the beads or the bell or the bowl of one monk who they think that this person may be reincarnated as are put there with two or three others that are either other people's or just completely 
not not owned by anyone. So basically, the child has to pick out the correct items from each batch of these things, the robes, the bell, the beads, to be considered the reincarnation of one of these llamas. So again, it's quite fascinating, and it's a very interesting case. Now, I will have more. Uh, I don't know what the next episode will be. I'm thinking I may switch off and go back over to the UFO topic. And if I do, it will be about a famous case from France. So I hope that you've really enjoyed these cases. I found them quite interesting. And that's eight already. And I could do another four per episode for five or six more episodes with no problem. There are other cases that I definitely want to come over, uh, cover over. So I will be definitely having more episodes about reincarnation moving forward. As always, folks, you be the judge in these four cases. I hope that you have a splendid week, a great weekend, wherever you are in the world. And to quote our bell, a mind should not be so open that the brain falls out. However, it should not be so closed that whatever gray matter which does reside within may not be reached. With that, my friends, take care, have a great week, and I'll talk to you soon.